We come to Acts chapter 1, and I'm glad you're here. If you missed the introduction last week, we'll catch you up, and I hope you'll commit to being here during these Sunday evenings when we look at the Acts of the Apostles. I hope that I'll give you some perspectives, perhaps, that you didn't have before, and we'll be able to look at the text with some new lenses or with some fresh eyes. Uh, we said last week that there were four Gospels and many, many letters, but there is only one history of the church in the entire canon of the New Testament, and this is that one book. So we must get Acts right. We said last week that it is here that we find out what the early church believed, what the apostles believed, because it is in this work before the Gospels are ever penned, that Peter stands up and preaches at Pentecost and says, this is what the Christ event is about. And if you are able to find out what the apostles thought about the Christ event, then you'll better be able to go back and read the Gospels because you are now reading them through the lens of the apostles' preaching. So we'll give you that set of lens as we go through this book. The first two chapters, remember this book written by Luke, the physician who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. So you might want to go ahead and find your way to Luke chapter 1 as well. We'll look a little bit at that and just in just a minute. These first two chapters of Acts are revolving around the miracle at Pentecost when we have that violent rushing wind that fills the whole house and those tongues of fire distributing and resting upon the apostles and believers. So chapter one and chapter two are pivoting around the Holy Spirit's arrival and Pentecost. So one word or two words, one idea for chapters one and two. If you want to do one word, you could say Pentecost. If you want to do two words, you could say Holy Spirit, the arrival of the Holy Spirit. We can know that by looking at these introductory verses when Jesus says to them, Look at verse 4. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You remember the gospel account is Holy Spirit and fire. And we'll actually see that baptism by the tongues of fire as well. So in this early command of the Christ, he tells them, stop leaving Jerusalem, wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So you see it there, right? He says, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them in the mission statement we'll look at in a moment, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So, Pentecost or Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 1 and 2. We won't get to chapter 2 for sure tonight. We'll see how far we get. Maybe we can get through all of chapter 1. Well, 1-1. One, one. The first account I composed, Theophilus, 
about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Well, turn back to, to Luke's introduction here. What we have in Luke and Acts is a literary prologue. And in fact, this type of literary prologue was common in antiquity, and but the Gospel of Luke and Acts are the only two New Testament books that have an official literary prologue. It kind of tells us that Luke thought of himself as writing for a learned audience. He thought that it was a little more formal in his approach to writing by giving us a literary prologue. Let's look back at the Gospel of Luke and look at his first literary prologue, and then we'll take a look at his second one. As much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses, Look at that word, eyewitnesses. That, that's important to Luke. And servants of the word have handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Well, Luke is saying, the physician is saying to someone by the name of Theophilus, I've looked at all the accounts of Jesus. I've done my homework. I, I have good sources and I want to arrange it all for you in an orderly fashion, Luke is saying. And he writes to one called most excellent Theophilus. Now, in Acts, in this second prologue, he leaves out the excellent. He's a little more familiar with Theophilus. Now, back to, to Acts in that prologue. The first account, I compose Theophilus. Now, who is this Theophilus? Now, he makes reference to the first account that he has written. So, in actuality, this is something of a secondary prologue which a writer would use when they're beginning a second book or a second chapter. So it's not as long as the first one because he figures you've read, you see, the first one. And this is a secondary prologue to that first prologue. Well, Theophilus. You can see the name there, can't you? Theos is the Greek word for God. Philos, a Greek word, one of the Greek words for love. Theophilus is lover of God. And some people, because that sounds really pretty generic, I write to you, the one that loves God, have supposed that there is no real person by the name of Theophilus and that he represents, it's a symbol, a name as a symbol that represents all who love God who might read. You see where they're going with that? And that might be plausible, but he seems awfully real to Luke when he writes. In fact, I would imagine Theophilus was something of a patron who had funded the writing and the research of the gospel and the history of the church. And so he's dedicating the work, as you see many books dedicated at the front of the work. And so I would say that Theophilus is a pretty real person who, who might have even helped fund the research and the work that Luke does in presenting us with this history of the church. Well, in these early verses, we're going to have reference. Let's, let's look here at verse 3. To these he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing 
convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. That's powerful, a reference to the ascension. And what's important about this reference to the ascension in verse 3 is the only other place where we have a real account of the ascension is at the end of what? The Gospel of Luke. It's alluded to in John's Gospel, but really the only place in the New Testament that speaks of, in a formal fashion, the ascension. Others assume it, but the one that spells it out in two different places is Luke. So the end of the Gospel of Luke ended with what? The ascension. And so how do we start the Acts of the Apostles? With the ascension. So his chapter 1 and chapter 2 overlap, much like a serial TV show where they kind of review what happened to the characters before. Well, on this Holy Spirit reference in, in the New Testament, during Jesus' ministry, there is no reference to the Holy Spirit being upon anyone except Jesus. During Jesus' ministry, there is no reference to the Holy Spirit being on anyone except Jesus himself. You remember at the baptism, the Spirit did what? Descended upon him, Luke 3. And Luke 4, it filled him as he returned from the Jordan. And in Luke 4, it both led him in and out of the wilderness for those 40 days of testing. And in Luke 4, 18, when he begins that programmatic sermon in Luke's gospel where he tells them that indeed the Messiah has come, the scripture has been fulfilled, Isaiah has really happened there in Luke 4 in that my favorite sermon of Jesus when we really find out who he is and what he stands for. There it is said that the Holy Spirit rested upon him. And so this introduction to the Spirit in, in Acts chapter 1 is not incidental for Luke. But what he's saying is the same Spirit who rested upon Jesus in his ministry would empower the apostles to be witnesses. The same Spirit that rested upon Jesus during his earthly ministry would empower the apostles to be witnesses. Listen to this. Formerly, they had experienced the Spirit through the presence of Jesus. And after Pentecost, they would experience Jesus through the presence of the Spirit. You see that? Before they had experienced the presence of the Spirit through Jesus, and now they will experience Jesus through the presence of the Spirit. It's flipped over after Pentecost with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. In verse 3. He makes those references to those 40 days. Now, this is the only place anywhere in the New Testament that we're giving any idea about how long the resurrected Jesus was still on earth. 40 days. If you go up, um, I'll give you, I like giving homework today for some reason. I'll give you some homework tomorrow. Ask somebody at work or at the retirement center or wherever you are, the bank tomorrow, after Jesus was resurrected, before he was ascended, how many days was he on earth? 
I'll let you ask three people and I'll give you a nickel for everyone to get to right because taint nobody going to get it right. People don't imagine it that way. They'll say three days, seven days. Might get a 10. If you really stretch it, you might get a 30. But 40 days walking around and making appearances as a resurrected Jesus. You see, our, our claim to have a resurrected Savior is not over a one-time momentary appearance. It is over a lengthy time of his being and dwelling amongst the apostles and being seen by them. In fact, in his Gospel of Luke, you remember one of those appearances the disciples who've left Jerusalem, they're downcast. Jesus has been crucified, and they're walking these disciples on the road to where? You could tell me, right? Emmaus. And he begins with Scripture and tells them how all those things have been fulfilled. And they say, won't you stay with us? And then they realize they have the insight. The Spirit lifts the lids from their eyes, and they realize that is he, and he's gone. So there's one account Luke gives us. There's another one in Luke's gospel. He tells us about Peter having a, a apparently individual experience with the resurrected Jesus. And he tells us about the apostles that he appears before them. The primary role of the apostles, l- listen to this, the primary role of the apostles is to be a witness to the resurrection. Now, you have some churches of different denominational background who claim they still have apostles. They can't. The primary role of an apostle is to be someone who actually physically saw the resurrected Jesus. And so, he wants us to know at the end of his gospel that Jesus appeared to the apostles. The apostles saw the resurrected Jesus. Well, 40, of course, is a number rich with biblical associations and allusions. You could give me the list yourself, couldn't you? How long were we wandering in the wilderness? 40 years. And How long was Moses at Sinai receiving the law? Forty days. And how long was Elijah sojourning at Mount Horeb there? And it was 40. And how many days was Jesus tempted when he was getting prepared for his ministry? That temptation of 40 days, the 40 days with no eating, fasting, was to get him ready for his earthly ministry? Well, just like those 40 days in the The wilderness and temptation made Jesus ready for his ministry of witness. Forty days of the resurrected Jesus walking amongst the apostles made them ready for their ministry of witness. You see that? Forty days. Not that he needed it, but they needed it. To be ready to receive the power and be the witnesses. Now, he tells them in verse 4, and gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. You really could translate this kind of this way. Stop departing Jerusalem. Stop it. Stop leaving Jerusalem. Something's going to happen here, and you want to be here for that, implying that they have been coming and going from the, the holy city over and over again. Stop leaving Jerusalem. 
the promise of the Spirit in verse 5. For John baptized with water, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's attributed to John the baptizer in the Gospels. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And indeed, we have in the Acts of the Apostles this occasion of repentance and baptism and the gift of the Spirit. There's three things that happen at salvation in, in Acts. Now, get these right. They are repentance, baptism, and the gift of the Spirit. Now, here's the complicated thing. For those of you who love formulas and guarantees, I can guarantee you won't figure it out. Because sometimes it, it comes in different order. Sometimes the Spirit comes before baptism. Sometimes the Spirit comes in conjunction with baptism. And sometimes the Spirit, I'll show you one in Acts 8, when the Spirit descends sometimes after someone's baptism. Now, people who like to be in control don't like that. The Spirit needs to come by the formula, right? Well, He will break your formula in Acts. He will come whenever He wants to. So the reality is, what is salvation? It is all those things. It is repentance and baptism and the gift of the Spirit. And that's why some denominations equate baptism with salvation because if you ask Paul, he would say, what do you mean? He couldn't imagine a unbaptized believer. It was part of the formula. You repented, you were baptized, and you got the Spirit. And therefore, I'll show you in Acts when they call baptism as if it's salvation because it represented salvation. You with me? Those three things are part of one and the same and interchangeable in the New Testament when he makes a reference. Well, in 6 through 8, they come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is this a time for restoration of your kingdom of Israel? Now, you know, there's always got to be a line that you go, gosh, they don't get it. You know, you think, really, really, you guys, you've seen the crucifixion, you've seen the resurrection, and now you're ready for the whole thing to end. And we got, we got 2,000 years, we know at least. And why are you guys, well, in their defense... The language of the descending of the Spirit was very eschatological or end-time language. And so if they're being told, you wait here, the Spirit's coming, we would have said, the end is here, right? That's what they said. The end has come. Passages like we'll look at next week, Joel had this idea of the outpouring the Spirit on Israel as the representative of the final great day of the Messiah. So, he says to them in verse 7, what he still has to say to us, quit being on the planning committee and get on the welcoming committee. <laughs> it is not for you to know. There have been a lot of books written about when. It is not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. It is not for you to know. But you shall receive power. So quit worrying about that. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Now, what is the primary function of an apostle? To be a witness. To be a witness of what? The resurrection of Jesus. You follow me? 
You shall receive power, and then you're going to be my witnesses. You know, if we don't have a resurrection, we don't have anything. And so that is the thing you witness to, right? You, I've seen a lot of men die. I've been by lots of bedsides when, when men die. It's nothing to say I was there for the crucifixion. Uh, I mean, but to be there and see the resurrected Jesus, you see, that's the thing you need to be a witness of. And then he gives us that programmatic passages, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem. Now, here's the way it goes. If you'll write this down, if you're doing it out, Jerusalem is chapters 1 through 7. Here's the outline of the book. Jerusalem is chapters 1 through 7. If you write in your Bible on Jerusalem, over Jerusalem, you just write 1 through 7. Judea and Samaria is chapters 8 through 12. Judea and Samaria is chapters 8 through 12. And to the ends of the earth, these missionary journeys... Chapters 13 through 28. We end at the end of the earth in Rome, 13 through 28. So it's to be considered a theme verse. Well, I told you earlier that only Luke had a real account of the ascension. And even at that, it's brevity at best. But in verses 9 through 11, we have that account of the ascension tradition from Luke. And after he had said these things, verse 9... He was lifted up while they were looking on. Now, as I read this, you count how many times you hear looking, gazing, seeing, anything that somebody's witnessing it, you, you count on your fingers. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. If you're a good counter, you're at two so far. And as they were gazing intently in the sky, while he was departing, behold, now that behold doesn't count, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking, there's number four, into the sky, this Jesus who has been taken up from you to heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched, number five, him go into heaven. You see that? They are to be eyewitnesses now, not just the resurrection, but also the apostles have been eyewitnesses to the ascension of Jesus. The ascension gives us some allusions to some other stories, especially this image of the cloud. You can write it down. In the Bible, when you have a cloud, you generally have the presence of God. It is theophany image. Cloud equals God. The presence of a cloud equals God. Uh, you remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, we shall be caught up together with them. Where? In the clouds. That means the presence of God. At, at our own ascension. You see that? So idea of clouds equals, equals God. Well, it, it reminds us of the stories of Enoch and Elijah, the, their translations, those two you remember don't die but are, are taken up. You remember the cloud that represents God at Mount Sinai? They watched a cloud you remember at the transfiguration in Luke's gospel that there in Luke chapter 9 that indeed the clouds kind of engulf, well, Moses and Elijah. They disappear and a cloud 
in Luke 9. So with this cloud, this presence of God enveloping Jesus during the ascension, it is to say, like Moses and Elijah and the transfiguration, he is taken up into the presence and the power of God while they're seeing and looking and seeing and looking and gazing as eyewitnesses of the whole event. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem. Can you imagine being one of those who saw the resurrected Jesus and then seeing him ascend? Well, I got some good news for you. You will be one who sees the resurrected Jesus in his state of ascended glory. Then they returned. That's a big then. I want him just to stop right there. Wait, wait, wait. We just had the ascension. Then they returned to Jerusalem. From the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day journey, you can write down three quarters of a mile. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room. Now, we cannot be for certain that this upper room is the same one where they had observed the Passover. We like to think that, but there's really certainly far from certain that that is the case. And then we have the list of the apostles, and we start in this list with, who do you expect? Peter. Why? Because Peter is the official or unofficial leader chosen by God, chosen by the apostles, gifted for the case. Peter is the leader. In fact, it is Peter who will preach our first sermon. So Peter is mentioned first. Peter and... Now, what would you think would be logical to come after Peter? Peter and... You wouldn't go with John, would you? He has a brother, doesn't he? And in Luke's gospel, it is Peter and Andrew. You with me? Well, I'm not saying anybody got demoted or anybody got promoted. I'm not really saying that. But I don't think this is unintentional. I think this is intentional. For in the Acts of the Apostles, the three apostles about whom there will be individual stories are Peter and John and James and not Andrew. So Andrew in the first account in the gospel is listed second. He goes to four and John moves up to number two. And if you've read the Acts of the Apostles, you're not surprised than the juggling of the apostles' names that John comes up to, to number two there in the list of the apostles. These were all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. I, I like that reference to his mother being involved. You know, her having seen him crucified there's not a mother in this room or grandmother in this room that can imagine what she saw and what she went through. Don't you like that she's part of those who experience this resurrected church knowing that he is alive and well. And there we have the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And with that, we have his brothers. We are told in Mark 6 that he has four brothers, James, Judas, Joseph, and Simon. James, Judas, Joseph, and Simon. Of course, not Simon Peter, and not the Judas who betrays. 
and not the James who's the brother of John. Now we act perturbed about that, but how many Davids do you know and how many Bills do you know? Uh, we, we name folks the same names too. James, Judas, Joseph, and Simon. And so these are the natural offspring of Mary and Joseph after the birth of Jesus. James, we are told, one of these brothers assumes leadership uh, position in the church in Jerusalem. And then Judas or Jude uh, later uh, assumes that same position of leadership at the church of Jerusalem. And he actually writes one of our New Testament books, if you will remember that. Well, prayer is a hallmark of the church in the early days, and they are praying, and they are waiting for the spirit that's been promised, and for the power to witness. There's no effective witness without the spirit, and there's no spiritual empowerment without prayer, and so they're praying, and they're waiting for the spirit. But before the spirit falls, we've got a problem. How many apostles should we have? Twelve. How many do we have? Eleven. Judas betrayed him and has died. So the first thing is to restore the missing seat with another apostle who has seen the resurrection. And so next week we'll find our twelfth apostle to complete the circle of 12. Let us pray. God, what a powerful book. How would we even know who you are or who we are without this single historical account of your people? I pray, O oh God, that as we study this book, that you'll open our, our, our eyes to wisdom and our hearts to transformation, that we too have received that power. And we too have experienced the resurrected Jesus, and we shall be his witnesses. Amen.